we as humans are much better at comparing two different risks. So if I were to ask you, if I were to show you two buildings and ask you which building is higher, taller, you'd have a relatively easy time figuring that out. But on the other hand, if I were to show you a building and say, tell me how tall is that building, you'd almost certainly struggle. And yet, if you sort of think about within the context of commercial insurance, the problem statement is not just relative, but it's also absolute. Mm -hmm. It's a prediction. And so understanding how the human brain is wired and, and understanding how we can sort of guide claims adjusters or underwriters with tools that reflect the institutional experience and expertise, uh, but also reflect the uncertainty around that understanding is where I think the ultimate power is. Hello, and welcome to The Brand Called You. Today, the brand we are talking to is Murli Buluswar. Murli is head of analytics at the consumer, US Consumer Bank at Citi. Previously, he was senior advisor at BCG and chief science officer at AIG. He's also worked at several other financial institutions and have a, had a long, illustrious career uh, doing work in analytics. He was educated at the University of Chicago and Auburn University before that. So welcome to the show, Murli. Pleasure to be here, Sandeep. Thank you for the opportunity to have this conversation. Um, well, let's get started. The first thing I noticed was at one point you had a title of Chief Science Officer, um, and that was at AIG. Uh, a lot of people think that uh, insurance is so regulated, you basically look up of a table, the age, gender, and whether you smoke or not, and that's your pricing. What does, how did you really impact uh, decision-making in a company which is so regulated and has so few degrees of freedom? Thank you, Sandeep. The first thought that I'd share is, um, look at the core of it in insurance, you're trying to predict an outcome in the future, an uncertain outcome. You're trying to put parameters around that and you're trying to figure out what risk tolerance you have and how that should influence your balance sheet and, and, and how that should connect to your P&L and the pricing that you should charge for uh, relatively predictable, but also uncertain uh, adverse outcomes, whether that is in life insurance or whether that is in property and casualty on the personal line side, auto insurance, and home insurance, or whether that's on the commercial side. So you can imagine in that world, this ability to think about the interplay of human judgment and data-driven intelligence and sort of to, uh, how do you put parameters around your understanding of the risk upfront, uh, as well as your understanding of what the valuation of an adverse event should be once it has occurred, it can be very powerful sort of being able to sort of think through how do you benefit from the best of the human intelligence, but yet also take advantage of the fact that as an institution, as a firm, you've got decades and decades of data and experience on how to think about the, uh, how to think about these issues and how do you connect the two in a way that uh, allows for uh, a more smoother interplay. And that was really the core uh, of the thought uh, behind the creation of the science team, which I had the fortune to, to lead. And my mission statement really was to augment human judgment 
with consistent data-driven intelligence. How far are we down that path? Are we augmenting? Are we supplanting? Are we taking over? Where are we in that journey, do you think? Uh, excellent question. Um, I would say that uh, as an industry, if you take the insurance sector, uh, we are, if to, to use a baseball analogy, we're probably at maybe a fourth inning uh, relative to where I think uh, we, we will ultimately head to. Uh, now, that sort of, uh, th that, that analogy varies from uh, subsectors within insurance. So in the auto insurance space, we're probably closer to the seventh inning. Um, although there's a separate question of what does auto insurance look like ultimately in a world of uh, self-driven vehicles uh, a decade or two from now. Uh, and it's a little bit more nascent in other parts of uh, the, the, uh, the insurance sector, namely commercial insurance, where, uh, where you have to sort of deal with the fact that you do have relatively rare events. Um, and, and any individual underwriter may have a handful of experiences, uh, but that is a very, very small portion of the overall institutional experience. Uh, and how do you kind of find the blend of both is really where I think the significant uh, opportunity is. Now, that said, I also think that if, if you watch large organizations that are looking to change in any form or fashion, the people in those organizations, just like every other person that we know, are driven by one or more or simultaneously all three of these uh, drivers of how we see the world and behave ethos, pathos, and logos. Hmm. And logos or logic or data, I purposefully put at the back end because that tends to be in, in, in large institutions, in mature organizations, that tends to be the last thing that actually drives human behavior and perception and understanding relative to ethos and pathos. Whereas if you think about a brand new firm that has been created from scratch or near scratch that has this thinking in its DNA, they are more likely to lead with logos than they are with ethos or pathos. Not right or wrong, just different, different cultures, different contexts, different ways of thinking about their roles and their competitive positioning. Also, it's been evolving. I know you're now uh, head of analytics at uh, the consumer, U.S. Consumer Bank at City, um, that company has had a long history of very driven culture where people built relationships, took risks, took decisions. Um, and several other financial institutions, I think, are going through an evolution where experience and relationships-driven decision-making is getting replaced to some extent by data-driven decision-making. Uh, I'm sure you have a bunch of stories on how that journey is going. Anything um, that stands out on how you have seen this play out, let's say, over the last four or five years, how the attitudes are changing, how the equations are changing, uh, what do you see? Um, so the first thing that I would say is let's recognize that, that when we talk about this evolution or revolution, we're getting at the core of people's identities their personal and professional identities, how they see their roles, and what value do they see themselves bringing. And so it's, I think, really important to embrace um, and work with the human dimension of the change and the implications 
uh, for how people react. That's sort of the first thing that I would say. The second thing that I would say is too often it becomes a question of should it be the human or should it be the machine or models or data? And for me, it's rarely an either or world. It's more about an interplay. It's not even a balance as much as it is a harmony of the two. And how we think about the role of the human versus the machine will vary depending on the context. So I very much imagine a, a, a world uh, in the very near future where uh, in some instances, the machine is supremely confident because there's a lot of data and you can parameterize the risk uh, and you can manage that portfolio uh, and your PL in a healthy way. Then there's sort of that next level in my mind where it is primary data augmented by human. The third level is probably um, human augmented by data. And in theory, there could be a fourth level of human only. But to me, that is difficult to perceive that fourth bucket because if it is only human, you still have some data to work with. And, and what's really important in this, in this sort of decision calculus is to understand how confident are we to not sort of think of it as this is what the model says. Too often people focus on an estimate from a model or a prediction, but an even more critical piece of that prediction is the uncertainty around it. And that's what in my mind should guide how we think about that interplay of the extent to which we want human judgment, the extent to which we want machine intelligence. And even within human judgment, I think the role that data can play is helping put parameters around that decision-making, helping anchor them based on experiences without being prescriptive, but guiding that, that human judgment in ways that reduces the bias and volatility of decision-making. Because you do want to get to a world where regardless of which human it is, you want that decision to be reasonably comparable. Mm -hmm. And in order to achieve that reasonable comparability, to not have it be too random or too uh, noisy or too all over the map, you want to be able to equip that human with data-driven intelligence and tools and insights that allow that sort of judgment to be uh, more narrow and more relevant in instances where they see something that the data simply cannot catch. And, and the best analogy that I have for this is if you sort of think about whether it is underwriting or whether it's claims, or you can think about the analog to those two instances to other sectors as well, we as humans are much better at comparing two different risks. So if I were to ask you, if I were to show you two buildings and ask you which building is higher, taller, you'd have a relatively easy time figuring that out. But on the other hand, if I were to show you a building and say, tell me how tall is that building, you'd almost certainly struggle. And yet, if you sort of think about within the context of commercial insurance, the problem statement is not just relative, but it's also absolute. Mm -hmm. It's a prediction. And so understanding how the human brain is wired and, and understanding how we can sort of guide claims adjusters or underwriters with tools that reflect the institutional experience and expertise 
but also reflect the uncertainty around that understanding is where I think the ultimate power is. So um, as I was listening to you, Murli, I, I, was, uh, I was kind of um, relating to it because I, I speak similar language in my, my world. Uh, but um, I wonder, do you find colleagues who listen to a talk of volatility, of decision-making, and I want to get it, in, and, and start think, sitting back and thinking, well, the deals are going to be made on across the table uh, over a three martini lunch and somebody's got to run the numbers uh, and that's fine, but real business is not dependent on that. Do you, do you see the benefit is now widely or is it widely understood or universally understood? Hmm. And help me clarify just to make sure I'm on the same page as you Sandeep. Uh, widely is a subset of universally, right? Is sort of yeah. how you define Widely meaning, yeah, most people, I, I would assume, certainly some people have already realized that this is a trend yeah. that's big and it's going to happen. Yeah. Widely means most people are kind of saying, I know how to use this tool yeah. now, how to empower my team, my business with it. Universally would be somebody like maybe automation would be in a bucket yeah. I'd put there. Everybody believes computer has to play a role. I don't know if everybody believes analytics has to play a role in their business. So my view is that in an objective sort of um, distance view, people can universally accept it. I.e. this notion of, I like all of this, especially when it happens over there. But the moment you bring it closer to home, all of a sudden that, that sort of thinking uh, changes a little bit. So, uh, and, 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 and then our brains are naturally wired, some of it in a productive way as well, for sure, in challenging the conclusions and the assumptions. Mm -hmm. So my view is that it is universally understood in sort of an objective, broader sense, but it is not, it is more widely understood within the context of a certain industry or a role. And the magic really is not just whether it's understood, but how is that understanding uh, translated into actual decisions and outcomes with tools that are meaningful. And that's where I think the, uh, the pathos sort of kicks in over the logos a little bit. So the human brain really is an interplay in my view of those three, uh, those three themes that sort of drive how we perceive information uh, and our perception is very much driven by the context. And so uh, I think that we've got a long ways to go in terms of internalizing that. Uh, at the same time, uh, I do think that it's perfectly fine for decisions or deals to be made over three martinis over lunch. The question in my mind is, going into that lunch, how well are the parties informed and educated and understanding of it? And how well do they understand sort of the parameters under which they should be making decisions? And, and that last mile of that human connectivity, I think, is very powerful and very much necessary. And I'd be disappointed if the value of that were to diminish. But on the other hand, the magic is really in sort of making sure that they've done their preparation and they have all of the background context. 
Um, it, it, when we were talking earlier, you mentioned uh, about, you were we were talking about uh, Daniel Kahneman. I want to bring that in. This variability of decision, the the uh, how we perceive and adjust to noise in our decision making, uh, is a theme of his newest book, and yeah. uh, and and uh, you were mentioning that that was also. Uh, influenced or somehow impacted by the work that uh, that you guys did together. I'd love to learn more about that. Decision making, when you're making millions of decisions, you know, like fraud prevention, every time a card swipe goes through, somebody has to make a decision whether it's fraudulent or not. Every time a direct marketing piece of mail goes out, somebody made a decision. How does variability or noise play a role? And... Um, uh, what can you share about the work around reducing that in decision-making? Very good point. Um, uh, the first thought that I would, I would share with you, Sandeep, is I have this extreme passion that um, the entire world needs to understand Bayes' theorem. Uh, I think that our ability to absorb information and interpret information um, is, is going to be at a whole new level of sophistication if we understood the concept of the two by two, essentially that Bayes' theorem implies, which is a deeper understanding of false positive and false negative. And the reason why that is important is that whether it is a doctor making a prescription for a certain health condition, or whether it is any other decision that we take in life, they have implications of false positive and false negative. And embedded in that decision is an assumption around what are the trade-offs? What is the cost of a false negative? What is the cost of a false positive? And the context of that will be dramatically different depending on when it's applied. But yet we go through life without thinking about it. If someone has a serious health condition, um, you, you, you know, they would rather have that sort of first test be a false positive and then sort of do subsequent tests and find out that they, they're quite all right versus getting that first test to be false negative and not knowing that they do have uh, an unfortunate health condition and then not being able to mitigate that in a timely way. So my first thought is, I do think that every decision maker and anybody that consumes any form of data to try to draw a conclusion needs to understand Bayes' theorem, needs to understand the false positives and false negative uh, rates, and then needs to be able to have a perspective on what is the, what is the cost of that. Uh, and those costs you know, are... I going to ask you, how would you explain Bayes' theorem to, to a 10-year-old? Uh, since you think everybody should know it, how, how do you explain it to a colleague who's not got a degree in statistics? Very good question. The way I would explain it is, um, and I'll use a real example maybe, I'd say, do you want to know whether, um, whether you're sick or not? Mm -hmm. and, 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 and if, the, if any person would say, of course, I do want to know. And then I would ask the question, how much do you value or how, how, to what extent do you really want to know that? And are you okay with my saying, my misdiagnosing you to say you're sick when you're not? Or, or would you, so, so I'd use real world examples 
of thinking about these decisions that we make because they have significant implications. And, so the and the problem, yes. Yeah. Uh, spending on a second test, just in case you made a mistake on the first test, is a lot less than the cost of not knowing incorrectly that you were sick. That's, I guess, the Possibly. Point. Possibly. In that instance, I mean, think about, let's bring it home to COVID. Nobody actually discussed last year on this time, nobody actually told you what those ratios are. But yet those ratios matter in a huge way. And they matter because they have real life consequences of decisions that institutions and countries and people make. And people people make that decision based on a binary prediction. But nobody really, I can't think of anybody other than the people that maybe created the tests that really even understood the implication of that. Yeah. And look, let's think about it. The healthcare business is a trillion dollar sector. People get, you know, once they get to a certain age, they get colonoscopies. More right? bigger than that, right? I think it's 15%, so it's probably like three trillion or something. Yes, trillions. Right, yeah. we we had all sorts of testing done, but we don't really sort of think about this issue. Yeah, and oh, by the way, doctors are making judgments on this without knowing that hmm. either. But anyway, I digress. Let me come back to your question from earlier. Come back to noise. So, so, so the question is fundamentally: being human, being uh, hu- being human means being biased, and hmm. and uh, making good decisions means bringing consciousness to your bias and separating your ability to read signal from noise mm-hmm. and, 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 and ensuring that uh, your decision, your judgment, whether you are uh, a judge in a court or whether you are an underwriter or whether you're anybody else is not sort of biased based on a set of semi-random uh, set of data points. That sort of is really the key, ultimately, is what we need to gun for. In the context of insurance, what we're able to do is start, we built tools that guided the underwriters to say, if these are the seven factors that sort of drive risk in a certain context, tell us, for factor number one, is this 25th percentile, is this 50th percentile, is it 75th percentile, is it 99th percentile? Which quartile is it in terms of what you've seen in your 20, 30 years of experience? Mm-hmm. Same thing for factor number two. And then what we do is we take all of that information and we, we, we draw a composite sketch on the basis of that. And we say, by the way, here's what this would suggest in the cumulative. And oh, by the way, we could also tell you how uh, you know, peers of yours, including perhaps yourself, have come up with the same judgment and something that looks very similar over the last 20 years. So in other words, to be able to say, if you and I see the same thing, and I say it's 50th percentile, you say 99th percentile, that's important data for me to have. That's important data for you to have. Because you should be asking the question, what does Murali see that I don't? And I should be asking the question, what does Sandeep see that I don't? By the way, that you know, to state the obvious, this sort of type of thinking is absolutely critical in many, many other sectors. You know, we when we get complex health conditions, patients go to get a second or third or fourth opinion. Hmm. 
And really so we're in the process of collecting data. You're uh, in many ways moving from averages and means that we make our decisions to the range or the variability on those estimates uh, on any kind. And that seems to be a core theme that you have focused on. Um, I'm going to shift gears, uh, um, Murli, and talk a bit about your personal background. Where did you grow up? I grew up uh, in a city that is now called Kolkata in the uh, northeastern part of India, one of the largest cities in the world. I reckon today it's a population of about 14 to 16 million or so. Very much middle, middle class by developing world uh, standards. And uh, uh, I remember when I was 16 years old, I decided that uh, I, I was going to sort of uh, uh, take a crack at uh, uh, going to college here in the U.S. Um, and and uh, my father essentially said, look, here's $7,000. That's what you get. Um, and you've got to go figure out how to make that count. And you only come back to my home as a guest. You do not blow through that money and come back saying that you couldn't make it work. And oh, by the way, how are you going to make the rest of it work is really up to you. So it was an extraordinary amount of uh, uh, pressure um, and in some ways, when I look back, I realized, gosh, I was truly thrown into the uh, deep end um, in one fell swoop. But, but that was a huge, huge, huge part of my personal uh, growth. Well, as they say, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So you came out much stronger at the other end. At what age do you remember some kind of a defining moment where you felt, well, math and statistics and analytics is going to be my path? Uh, gosh, what I would say experience that, that has shaped you as a person. I, I don't want to limit yeah. it just to analytics, but Absolutely. any experience that shaped you. Well, very many, many experiences. Um, but, but right about when I was 18, I started studying economics. Um, and, and, and I had the fortune of studying economics with a professor who took a very Socratic approach to learning, i.e., um, he didn't see his role as teaching us just a set of principles or, or laws or, or, or what have you, but, but he really taught us about concepts and ideas. Uh, mm -hmm. And he would test us by pulling an article from the Wall Street Journal or The Economist or New York Times or where have you and ask us to evaluate that article based on concepts that we discussed in class. And he would also make a critical part of all of the coursework, a uh, term paper on a topic of our choice. So what I learned very quickly when I was doing that is I liked subjects that allowed me to imagine and think um, as opposed to subjects that defined a set of rules and measured my ability to memorize rules. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I've, I've always much valued sort of that creative thought process and the conceptualization and the abstract reasoning and the critical thinking skills that drive me to ask the question why and drive me to sort of reimagine something almost from a scorched earth uh, approach to many things that I see. So that's a skill and a passion that I built. And I found myself being in areas where uh, where, 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 where I was developing that dimension of how my, uh, how my brain worked. Um, and, and at one point, I had an ambition to get a PhD and, and realized that I just really needed to bolster 
my uh, fluency in all things statistics um, and ended up studying uh, statistics um, and then was tempted into the professional life before getting a PhD um, and, and thought that I was going to go get a PhD. And in fact, when I was at the University of Chicago, I had the opportunity to get a PhD to tag on to my MBA. But uh, one of my regrets in life is not really uh, taking advantage of that opportunity. Uh, but, but what I learned about myself is I didn't just like coding. I'd I liked thinking about the problems. I liked being that connector between ideas and, and, and insights and, and change. And so my, my whole professional story has been at sort of an interplay of the intersection of uh, questions or ideas or thinking uh, with, with data and, and, and models and insights with connected to uh, influencing uh, and, and change. Um, and, and it's really at that sort of intersection of the three where I've found myself uh, having some That's highly fulfilling professional experiences. Most people wouldn't associate statistics and analytics with the kind of thinking and going in, in the unknown problem solving kind of a mode, but, but you're using these hard tools in science to solve ambiguous and new and interesting problems, I think is what you're saying, which, which is fascinating. Um, we are on to the section, which I call on the spot. So I'm going to ask you a quick questions. Feel free to give me a cheeky answer, a funny answer, or whatever comes to your mind answer. The first one is, if you were to go buy a nice gift for your CEO, what will you get? I would buy my CEO a book. Um, uh, 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 and, and the book that comes to mind, and not to pivot off of something that we've already discussed, is uh, Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow. Um, and this, this idea of how the human brain works. Yeah, that's a classic. Pentagon just released their report on UFOs. I don't know if you saw that news. And, and they yes. concluded uh, that uh, they, it was inconclusive. Had they confirmed they were aliens that they had uh, detected, how would you have changed your life? Uh, I believe that uh, alien life is a very, very high statistical probability, given that the Earth and, and, and our solar system is barely even a speck of dust in the scheme of the universe. Um, it would just uh, arouse my curiosity to sort of understand what the other side might look like. Uh, and, and I'd be tickled by that idea. I would not fear it, uh, but I'd be very happy to have some real data that validates my belief that uh, it's, it's almost impossible that there aren't multiple uh, forms of life in multiple parts of the universe. So you wouldn't buy a ration and move to middle of nowhere and dig a bunker or something like that? Well, just because we discovered the existence <laughs> of life doesn't mean they didn't exist for the last thousands of years or millions of years. Sure. So nothing changes. Nothing changes, just some curiosity. Okay. A life lesson that you have learned from a movie. From Shawshank Redemption. And what was the lesson? And the lesson is about hope. 
and 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 the 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 debate between the two main characters was is hope a good thing or is hope a bad thing when you're stuck in a prison and you don't see a way out and i believe that hope and belief is very very powerful uh to help us see through challenging times and to help us see through that there is another side to whatever difficulties we're going through and that if we persevere and learn we will actually get to that place great i am reading uh, the plague by albert camus and and he has addressed something very similar uh, on people who are kind of quarantined in this town um and they are also dealing with uh, hope when you are constrained for months um Merli, it's been fascinating. We are at the end of our time. Last question: What is Brand Murli Boluswar in your own words? Radical empathy, um, driven by this fundamental belief that I want to be a positive source of energy for everyone whom I have the fortune of interacting with in my life. that is something fundamentally that drives me on a day in day out basis is this notion of how do i build positive relevance and how does my existence in somebody's ether enrich them and through that enrichment how does that give me back positive energy to be a source of positive radiance with those whom i have the fortune to interact with great um wish you having a lot of positive impact thank you so much for sharing uh, your wonderful journey so far and best wishes for the future real treat sandeep you are a champion uh, i appreciate who you are and what you do and i feel grateful that uh, you considered my story worthy of this conversation and uh, look forward to many more offline my friend thank you Thank you for listening to the brand called You video cast and podcast. A platform that brings you knowledge, experience and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website www.tbcy.in to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Just search for the brand called You.